A small difference in trajectory can make a huge difference in your destination. Uh, Ten years ago, as a family, we were driving home from a cross-country trip to visit family and churches in the Midwest, and as we were driving back, we stopped in St. Louis, and when you stop in St. Louis for a day, there's one thing that you have to see. It's the Gateway Arch, and so we, we had a whole day there and, and really wanted to, to check out this, this monument, this, this, this structure, and it's an incredible structure. Um, it took a few years to build, opened in 1965. It's, it's huge, 630 feet tall, um, 630 feet long, the, the distance. But one of the coolest things is that as you, you approach it, you go to this, there's a, underneath the arch is the visitor center. So you walk down and uh, you can learn all about the arch, but then you take a tram inside the arch all the way to the top. And you can look out the top and, and see the, the windows there. But as we're... Um, underneath the, the arch and just reading and understanding how it was built. Um, they said that the arch's two legs were, were built separately on each side. That's how they started, 630 feet away from each other. And if their measurements were off by as little as 1 64th of an inch, they would not be able to meet at the top. To me, that was astounding. Uh, the margin of error was, was less than a half a millimeter. And though the construction workers were sure of the, their product, many people speculated that the arch would fail, that, that they would get to that last point and that last piece in the middle wouldn't connect. Well, it did. A small difference in trajectory, though, can make a huge uh, difference in your destination. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we were driving um, from Michigan, we had flown into Chicago, and so we were returning our flight into Chicago. So we drove from Michigan five hours to, to Chicago, to O'Hare. And if you've ever been to Chicago, uh, traffic is a nightmare, no matter when you go. <clears throat> and I was prepared. I had, I had plenty of change in my car for a $1.50 toll four different times going around the city that will get us to the airport at, at a reasonable time. And foolishly, I had trusted the car's GPS. I didn't check to see uh, which direction and how it was going. Um, and, and again, it's not connected to traffic at all. It's just telling me, you have one hour. And I'm like, oh, sweet, one hour. And I didn't check. And, and I didn't take I-294 around the city. And, and before I knew it, I was on I-90 going right through the city. And we traveled 12 miles in an hour and 10 minutes with a three-year-old telling me they had to go to the bathroom every two seconds. Just hold it. And then preparing our kids because we knew we were going to be late. And for me, I, I had to prepare myself. Lord, you're sovereign over this. If we miss the flight, we'll figure out a way to get home. Getting to the car rental, getting to the airport, dropping off our bags, getting the flight, all God took care of all that. But a small difference in trajectory can make a huge difference in getting that des destination. Sin often begins with what may feel like a minor concession. Just a small decision for, for this shortcoming, for this situation to, to allow a, a, a small satisfaction. Just this one time, just this one decision, it doesn't seem like a big issue in the moment. But that simple decision can change the trajectory of your life to a deadly destination. People sometimes talk about unintended consequences of an action, meaning that the results of that action were not intended that way. 
And I don't know about you, friends, but if I think back, most of the consequences of my actions were unintended every time. Just reflect back on every carefully thought out uh, action in your past, and you'll find that there were some results of that action that you did not intend. Perhaps, though, you're here today and you're, you're concerned that your life is headed in the wrong direction. Maybe you're concerned that our country is going in the wrong direction. Maybe you're sensed that you're, you're headed in an unintended direction. Perhaps you come this morning and you're at the end of a series of decisions, now wondering where you should go or where you're at. And if you carefully read your Old Testament, friends, you realize that the nation of Israel made some crucial and foolish trajectory changes. Ironically, the, the nation that Joshua led out of the wilderness into the promised land in order to be a witness to the nations makes a number of choices that makes them a mere imitation of the nations. And Psalm 80, which we'll look at this morning, holds for us a call for repentance, for, for turning, for change. It, it tells us the story of God's faithfulness to his people, but also their rejection of him and his good ways. But, but more strongly, it tells us of the psalmist crying for God's people to turn back to God from the rejection of him. It calls God's people to reject their rejection of him. And in this psalm, it's a search for restoration. So I'm gonna read Psalm 80 and then pray. If you have a Bible, please turn there. It would serve you well this morning to have a Bible open in front of you. That's where we're gonna be this morning. Psalm 80, if you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 460. If you're new to reading the Bible, the, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verses, and we're gonna look at the entire chapter here of, of Psalm 80, Lord willing. So follow with me as I read. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm, verse one. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. And it, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It set out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's pray. God, we recognize that if we are to live obediently to you, we need to be filled with your word. 
We need to know it and obey it. And so as we prepare to open it and read it and hear it preached to us, we ask that you would, your people would listen humbly and attentively, that we would listen expectantly and prayerfully, that you would use your word both to confront us and comfort us, to call us away from sin and toward holiness. We pray that we would be changed by your word. That's our desire. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're gonna walk through Psalm 80, the search for restoration. And the only way to be restored is to recognize that you need to be restored. In this psalm, we'll, we'll see the author, whom we believe is Asaph, and we'll look at three points there. It's in your, your outline if you got one when you came in. First is a plea, verses one through three, a lament, verses four through seven, and a metaphor as the psalmist paints a picture for us in verses eight through 19. And I've landed at this outline simply because the concluding statement with every refrain in verse three and verse seven and verse 19 seemed to be a, a clear division break for this passage. But first, let's begin with the plea, verses one through three. This psalm was most likely written after the invasion of the Assyrian army, uprooted them and carried them into the northern tribes, and now they are in captivity. But we're not sure. Either way, God's people are lost, and the psalmist cries out, and it's Israel's first line of defense had always been God alone, but, but now it seems they're alone. And in verse one, he, he says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And God has called the shepherd of his people over and over in scripture, but it's interesting to, to notice that this idea of God being Israel's shepherd only occurs twice in all of the book of Psalms, here and in, do you know? Psalm 23, only two times. But elsewhere in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And the, the shepherd imagery is that of care and protection. And the sheep implication means obedience and submission. He appeals then to God as the, the shepherd of Israel. It's a, it's a humble way to begin his plea. And, and he says there, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. More, more than that he is the one who is holy and gives mercy to his children, that the Lord's special presence was revealed in the mercy seat between the cherubim. And, and all of our pleadings for help should come to the Lord this way, asking, begging for mercy. Only on the mercy seat will God reveal his grace, and only there we can hope to come to him. And he knows that this is where hope lies. Israel will only get through this captivity because of the mercy of God. And as Christians today, we can only hope to receive grace and mercy because of Jesus Christ. We become only through Jesus. In the, in the darkest times, the light of our shepherd's countenance is all that we need, he says. And then in verse two, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come save us. The ark was a, was a token of God's power. It was called the ark of God's strength. So when the psalmist says before these, these tribes, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, he's probably referring to those three tribes who were the ones that marched behind, directly behind the ark, as Numbers 2 talks about. Exodus was something they knew theologically, but it was, it was something that they longed to experience in reality right now. They longed for the God of Exodus to rescue them from this foreign captivity that plagued them now. And he says there in verse three, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
And this is that phrase that's repeated three times throughout the psalm, which, which gives a break through the refrains. Each, except each time he increases, did you notice that he increases in his declaration of who God is? Verse three, restores, O God. Verse seven, restores, O God of hosts. Verse 19, restores, O Lord, God of hosts. And, and the Hebrew imperative for restore us is a, a causative form to, to cause something of the verb shub, which is frequently used to describe repentance in the Old Testament. You don't have to keep track of the Hebrew words. It's the idea of repentance, okay? And so this, this, this command form could equally be read, cause us to repent, O God. That's what he's, he's pleading for. Cause us as a people to repent, O God. And the psalmist alludes to the plight that shows the awareness that this present traumatic circumstances were, were caused by their rejection of God and his ways. And don't read this as, as if God had turned his back, but more like their back had turned from him. They were the ones who, who needed to turn around, not God. They needed to repent, not God. They needed to humble themselves, not God. And he's, he's not so much asking uh, to restore them out of captivity as to restore them to him. And what humility we read in this. All will come right when we are right with God. Spurgeon said the best restoration is not of circumstances but of character. When the Lord restores us, he will soon restore the situation. But not so much of the time we want the restoration of the situation first. We, we, we just want to get out of the trouble. Are we as committed to being changed ourselves? Do we even recognize that we need to change? How much of your daily time in the word and in prayer, you're asking God to show you what you need to change? Or do you think you're good? I'm good, God. Can we echo the words of the psalmist? Cause us to repent, O oh God. Make it so abundantly clear to us, God. We have no other choice but to repent. Is that your demeanor towards God? Are you quick to confess and turn from your sin? Or is it someone else's fault? I mean, it happened, but it really wasn't my fault. They, they said those things. They, they caused me to get angry. They did this. They did that. They made me angry. They made me leave. Are, are you quick to pass the blame onto someone else? Are you habitually finding a way out of accepting responsibilities of your actions? The only way to be restored is to humble ourselves. For my non-Christian friends that are here this morning, we're glad you're here. And you need to understand that there is no obtaining favor with God unless you're converted by him first. In fact, I would surmise that the whole teaching on repentance and conversion and salvation must be silly for those of you who believe that you're naturally good. I mean, why would you need to turn from something if you believe you're already good? Why would you need to turn from that direction if you feel the direction you're going is okay? But the Bible pleads with you to understand that your trajectory is not good. It's not healthy. It's incredibly dangerous. 
Many in our world have had some religious upbringing, but all of the religious knowledge and religious jargon will not make up for having a heart that is turned away from God and his truth. According to the Bible, this is the natural state of every person's heart. All of our hearts are naturally attached to sin, to the created thing, and to ourselves. Naturally attached to that. Not naturally attached to God. In other words, sin starts with a terrible uh, affliction of loving created things more than the creator. So all of our actions that we call sins simply flow out of our wrongly oriented hearts. And if your heart is going to change, friends, it's because God will change it. Conversion is the work of God. It's not the work of man. God is the creator of a new heart, not man. And so friends, if we want to see others, other people's hearts change that we're reaching out to, we need to pray. Parents, you need to pray that God would convert your kids. That he would change them. Conversion is completely of God. Changing hearts is God's work. And if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, you need to pray and ask God to change your heart to love him, to love his word. And I have wonderful news for you. When you pray and you submit yourself to God, he will answer. He's promised to do so. Christian brothers and sisters, do you know that it's our job to share and to live out this good news? It's our responsibility to warn people lovingly of their sin. Do you recognize that every time you share the gospel with someone, you're telling them that they're wrong and God is right? That's what sharing the gospel is. And you need to, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the words and the grace needed to share this important truth of who God is and what man is and what Christ has done and then calling them to respond. That's sharing the gospel with someone. God, man, Christ response. God, man, Christ response. We should all, as Christians, know this. It doesn't take away the fear, because I don't know about you, I don't really enjoy telling people they're wrong. But that's what sharing the gospel is. The trajectory that they're going is, is wrong. They need to be submissive to what the Bible says. But I also must warn you, Christian, that in your life you will never experience so much blessing, material or spiritual, that you will be placed beyond sin's grasp or beyond the call to obedience. Do not follow Israel's example. Do not repay God's blessings to you with sin. Even the best among us struggle with sins that must be forgiven by Christ and forsaken by God's power. We must turn again from the world, from the flesh. And he says he will cause his face to shine upon us. So this is his plea. Second is his lament. Verse four, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You've fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. 
Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And people are beginning to think now that God is inattentive. The psalm reflects that the people's attitude, they believe that God has distanced himself from, from them. This is the same God who spoke the world in existence. He, he commands the stars, the armies of angels, the host of heaven and all that there is on earth. And this God is the one we can trust to manage all the universe. And if he hides his face, we're in trouble. When there is silence, it's horrible. But delay in answering prayers is not denial from God. God's way of answering our prayers are the best, so we need to trust him. But what they pray matters to God also. If God is really angry at their prayers, then for me, the, natu the next natural question is, what are their prayers? Remember what James says about prayers? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Perhaps they're praying for themselves, for the desires, for, for, for them only, regardless if God is honored or glorified. Friends, God will only answer prayers that will bring him glory. That's simply what's most important in this world. So if they're praying that, that, that God would have no glory, if it's all selfish, perhaps God is angry with their prayers because they're praying against the glory of God. They are praying, that's clear in this verse. They're, they're going to God, but something is, is amiss. They, they, they pray, but they're not wrestling in prayer. The, the end of their prayers is, is either self-centered. Is it, is it the focus of their prayers for their own glory? Perhaps there's some secret sin that they're harboring or, or feeding or petting or cultivating. Perhaps they don't lift up pure hands and pure hearts in prayer. Rather than they, they pray doubting and double-minded, as James says, thinking that God perhaps might answer their prayer, but probably isn't. What I recognize, though, the longer I live in this body, on this earth, when you're suffering, sometimes your thinking isn't always accurate. Perhaps their prayers are not in accordance with God. Perhaps they're really selfish in their prayers. Perhaps there's a sin, but ultimately we don't know. Perhaps there's nothing wrong with their prayers, but God isn't answering. Maybe because it is silent, they assume that it has to do with their prayers. And suffering has a way of clouding our judgment of ourselves and our circumstances. That's why I believe, convinced even more, that lament and prayer is necessary for our souls. Do you hear the lament from the psalmist? Listen again, verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long would be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Is, is God angry at their prayers or has he chosen to not answer right now? Their meals, which were once pleasant seasons of, of social cheer, are now like funeral feasts, which each man contributes a bitter morsel. They, they swallow pints of tears, is what he's saying. They, they swim in gulfs of grief, all because God ordains it for them. And their enemies mock them, tormenting them with their, their looks, harassing them with their words. Their pain is real. Have you ever experienced this type of pain? Five years ago, we stared at disbelief.
as God was removing us from Sweden. I don't know how to put you in the situation for a number of reasons we wrestled with the whys of what's happening. I do remember we were unable to think clearly. Filled with tears, frustration, fear. Lots of unanswered questions that mounted more and more each day. And we were lamenting. Although to be honest with you, I didn't know that we were. We cried, we didn't hear answers. We, we drank deep of the pints of tears swimming in the gulf of grief. But I do remember, by the grace of God, by him and him alone, we ended by hoping in him. That's really all we knew what to do. I mentioned this a number of weeks ago, and I've given this book out to a few people, but Pastor Mark Vergrope's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, has been a real help to understand lamenting because I believe as a church, not just ours, but the church, we skip over this. Let me share a few quotes from the book. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament is rooted in what we believe. It's a prayer loaded with theology. Lament can be defined as a loud cry, a howl, a passionate expression of grief. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It takes faith to pray a lament. Prayerful lament is better than silence. To learn how to lament, we must resolve to talk to God to keep praying. Lament is how we learn to live between the poles of a hard life and God's goodness. In lamenting, hurting people are given permission to grieve, but not aimlessly, not selfishly. Lamenting isn't griping, it isn't whining, it's not worldly complaining, it's grieving, but with the focus to get more of God. And then he says, each step of lament is a part of a pathway towards hope. Lament invites us to turn our gaze from the rubble of life to the redeemer of every hurt. And there comes a point where we must call to mind what we know to be true. And the psalmist here is angering his questions, their pain as a nation to the greatest redemptive event in the life of Israel, the Exodus. That moment that defined their understanding of who God is. The Exodus was an anchor for their weariness. And we see this most clearly as he moves forward in these verses. All we could do five years ago was try to remind ourselves of what we knew to be true of God. When our hearts and minds wanted to question him, when our flesh wanted to tell him what to do to remove pain, to make the path forward clear, all we knew is that we needed to trust God 
and we needed to let that saturate our prayers. We weren't perfect. We crawled to God as much as we could, but that's the end of a prayer of lament. God, we trust you. Biblical lament defines a path that allows us to walk through the messy and painful parts of life with our eyes on Jesus Christ. But friends, the path isn't always clear and it isn't always easy. He says to lament as Christian as we turn to God in prayer to lay out our complaints, to ask boldly and choose to trust. You have to choose to trust. John Piper says, keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. That's the truth of it. If we're going to learn how to lament, you keep trusting in the one who keeps you trusting. And the psalmist ends this, this refrain, this section, by repeating his trust. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Turn us again, O God of hosts. Turn us again. It's, it's not that, ba- that God had turned away from them, but it's that they've turned from him. They were, they were the ones who needed to turn again, to remind it again that their trust needed to be in God. God isn't the one who needs to change. We are. His lament leads to a metaphor where he's going to expand even more on this, where he reminds himself and others of who God is and why he's worthy of our trust. That's third, the metaphor in verses 8 through 19. He says in verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out of the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Do you hear the sovereignty of God in these verses? You brought, you drove, you cleared. The Lord is the one who brought the vine, his people from Egypt to move them. As a gardener prepares the ground for his vine, clearing away stones and thorns that would hinder its growth, so the great husbandman had cleared out Canaan and had used the Pharaoh as a tool in his hand. They had, they had spread all because of God's work in them. The plan of God was prosperous, and by the time of the days of Solomon, the vine had taken firm hold of the promised land. But then in verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in in the field feed on it. Why? We, we all ask the question of why in our prayers. We must realize that sometimes God's answer is silence. We don't always get the answer to our why. At one level, for Israel, the answer to why he's broken down the walls is because he's judging their sin. He's he's punishing them for their clear disobedience to his word. You can see it repeated in Amos, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah. It's all over. God intended his people to be enriched by contract with the world beyond their frontiers. He also intended Israel to be a, a standing testimony in the midst of the nations to to the saving and keeping power of God. Their land was to be crossroads of the ancient world so that men passing through might be able to carry back to their country the news that God had pitched his tabernacle among the men of Israel, 
The world was to know that there in this little land, God's word, God's worship, and God's ways could be studied as an open book. That was the mission of Israel. And they failed. So at one level, it's true. God is judging them for the refusal to worship him alone. But the Bible doesn't stop there. There's yet another mention of the vine that Jesus talks about. Do you remember it? John 15, the night when he would be betrayed and the night he would die, he'd stand before his disciples and he'd say, I am the vine, you are the branches. Friends, God would be faithful to this vine. The psalmist couldn't have known this or even understood it. And so he genuinely cries out in the midst of what he's experiencing, why are you doing what you're doing? And God has a very good answer and he doesn't give it to him. But we... This is why we need to love God's word. We have the privilege to open up the book and look back and see the glory of God's plan to save his people. So he cries out, verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from the heaven and see, have regard for this vine. There's an, there's an edginess to this request that's being made. He's literally saying, do what must be done, whatever that may be, to bring about the restoration of your people, your vine. If the exile resulted from the removal of Yahweh's protection, the restoration could only result from the renewal of that security which comes from God's presence. And how often do we pray this way when our trajectory in life is off? How often do we pray and lay it all out, asking God to do whatever he must, whatever it may be, to bring about restoration. He isn't asking for something new. He's, he's calling God to make good on the promises that he's already made. And he will. And then he continues. He, he continues to point us forward. Verse 15, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. He realizes that all the troubles had come from the, the chasing hand of God. And then in verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And this, this is a plea based on God's faithfulness and compassion. And it's amazing to consider. John Calvin said, God answers our prayers, not as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. And I love that. God answers our prayers, not as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. And friends, is there, is there any better example than verse 17? Here's the psalmist pouring out his heart to God, asking God to hear his prayer because of God's faithfulness and compassion. And, and here. Here's how he prays for Israel. He uses the same language that you find back in Israel's blessing of Joseph in Genesis 49. He says in verse 17, the psalmist, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man, whom you may strong for yourself. See, the psalmist doesn't understand. He's praying that God's hand would be the son of his right hand, ultimately Jesus. He didn't realize that Israel's sufferings were really a foreshadowing of the Messiah on their behalf. The exile was to prepare God's people to understand that the way of glory was the way of the cross. The way of victory was going to be the way of suffering. And it was going to be shown most clearly through the son going 
God's son, the son of God, God's, God's right hand, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, going to the cross. He ends the psalm in verse 18. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Spurgeon said, men can do little with their arm, but God can do all things with a glance. God will give life. That's what he does. See, so much of the Old Testament hinges on our understanding of the Exodus and believing it. If you don't remember the Exodus, if you don't believe the Exodus, you will struggle to understand God and his word. And for the Christian, today, the Exodus event, the, the place where we find ultimate restoration is the cross of Christ. That is where all of our questions, all of our pain and suffering should be taken. The cross shows us that God has already proven himself to be for us and not against us. And think of this. Jesus bought the right to make everything right in this world and in your life. He bought that right to make everything right in this world and in your life. Even if you're being killed all day long, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, nothing, no, no pain, no disappointments, no disease, no betrayal, none of it can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what's the trajectory of your life? Where are you headed? Is God calling you this morning back into obedience to him through his word? Perhaps you've made a series of decisions that you realize today have turned out poorly, have taken you away. Perhaps God is using Psalm 80 this morning to draw you back to himself. And Christian, this morning, the Lord answers our prayers, not as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. And so when we do not get an answer to our, our, our heartfelt pleas of why, let us then rejoice that God does answer prayer in his time. And friends, there's no greater truth in all of God's word that can bring comfort and consolation to a trembling believer than to read this psalm from beginning to end and see God's magnificent plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As we remember and rehearse yet again your faithfulness to your people. God, I thank you this morning that you're not sentimental, but sovereign that nothing will thwart your plans. That you are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your promises. God, I pray that we would be a people who love you, who love your word, and seek to be obedient to your word. I pray that we would be a church that would welcome encouragement and even rebuke. 
that we would be quick to repent. That we would be quick to turn from a direction, a trajectory that's, that's heading away from you and turn back towards you. God, I pray that you would humble us. You would keep us close to you and your word, sensitive to your spirit as he teaches us and guides us as he applies your word to our life. And God, I do pray for those that are here this morning that they're confronted now with this gospel. They're confronted with the truth that their good works, their, their good thoughts about themselves isn't good enough. That it's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through his sacrifice for them on the cross that they can be redeemed, that they can be converted and changed. And God, we ask that you would do that work in their heart, that you would give them faith to believe to turn from their, their way of trusting themselves and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Father, help us who love you, who love your word, to faithfully take your word to those that we live, that live among us in our, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. For your honor and for your glory alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.